Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. And this week we're answering your science questions with our panel of the brightest and the best minds we could find. Plus, we'll be discussing the new game-changing cancer treatment and the futuristic world of energy harvesting and much more. I'm Kat Arney and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's begin by meeting our team of brains. And we have Stuart Higgins. He's our resident physicist from Cambridge University. He works on optoelectronics. That's the use of light in electronic devices like computers and mobile phone screens. We're joined by Peter Cowley. He's a tech investor extraordinaire and our technology guru. We've got neuroscientist Ginny Smith. She's our brainy lady. She can discuss the body, the mind and anything in between. And we have Chris Smith, naked scientist, virologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and our resident know-it-all who can tackle pretty much anything else. And myself, I am a trained geneticist and a cancer expert. So our first question is for you, Jenny. Let's kick off. And it comes from Jodie. I've got an eight-year-old daughter who now and again twists my arm and falls asleep in front of the telly. What I find strange and what has been bothering me for a while is that when I carry her up to her room, she feels like she weighs a packet of cement. But when I carry her during the day or occasionally, she feels so much lighter. Why is this so? If you think about it in terms of, has anyone ever seen um, a dancer being lifted in the ballet or perhaps a gymnast or an acrobat? Now, it might not look like the person being lifted is actually doing very much. It looks like the person doing the lifting is doing all the work. But actually, that dancer or that gymnast is doing a lot. They're using their core muscles to help hold themselves up. And I think that's probably what your daughter does when she's awake. She'll be sort of holding her muscles in a way that makes it easy to pick her up. She might even sort of wrap her hands around your neck and hold on. And that helps spread her weight so that you're you're carrying her with your arms, but some of the, her weight is actually going down through your shoulder and your back, which is stronger than your arms. So she doesn't feel as heavy. Now, when we go to sleep, we basically lose all of the control of our muscles. We become paralysed, we become completely relaxed and floppy. And you may have noticed if you pick up someone when they're asleep, they can be a bit like a rag doll, sort of flopping all over the place. So her muscles won't be engaging in order to help with the lifting. And actually what you're doing is you're feeling her full weight. It's not any more than she weighs. She hasn't actually put on any weight, but you're feeling every pound of that weight because she's not helping. Dead weight for nothing then. Exactly, exactly. So this is the same principle. When someone is dead, they weigh their their actual weight, but they're just more difficult to lift. Yeah, and we're just not used to lifting people who aren't helping with the lifting because normally when you lift someone who's awake, they automatically contract their muscles and do everything they can to make themselves as easy to lift as possible. I used to have a a basset hound dog and she was impossible to pick up because she'd just (laughs) sort of go all rubbery and become (laughs) floppy and really, really difficult to lift. Sometimes toddlers do that as well if they don't want 
want to be picked up, they'll make themselves really difficult. They'll go completely rigid or, you know, that kind of thing if they're having a tantrum. But most of the time, people try and help. Fantastic. So uh, we've got a question now for you, Peter. Let's have a technical question. Our listener, Martin Burrows, has said, could the internet die? This is a terrible thought. Uh, Yes, I think we'd probably live without the internet in time. But let's just unpack the question. I mean, presumably the question means, will the internet die completely? But the internet does actually die in in short bursts anyway. BBC uh, had a what's called a distributed denial of service attack at the end of last year. So the BBC site was down only for a day. It was hardly dying, but it was, was obviously very ill that day. Censors, countries censor. China censors quite a lot of uh, sites. Um, in the Arab Spring, social media was switched off in a number of countries in the, in the Middle East. Um, uh, so those are ones of the short term. The ones that are sort of not death, but, but when it's ill, is things like broken cables, broken submarine cables. That happens remarkably often, trawlers and things. There's a difference between sort of the, the technical hardware breaking down and then the servers where the, the internet pages live not being allowed to get through to get us. Get through, exactly, yes. There are times when we... In these situations where it would slow down but what the question is actually asking would it could it ever die now i think there's only about three different reasons that could happen one is some sort of global war uh, with threat like that you know where the population of the earth would be badly affected by that purely because of what was going on the war it could be somebody basically ruling the planet would switch it off or it could be some really massive cosmic or gamma shower or something like a solar storm or exactly, like we yeah. hear about worries about that that could knock out communication systems but more than that it would knock out probably most electronics so you know a lot of aircraft would fall out of the sky telecommunication and, and no everything. one could tweet about it because the internet <laughs> exactly, would be broken yes. so it would you know it would everything would shut down banking transport utilities power water all kinds of things but of course, one should remember that it's only been about 15 years that the internet's been in mass use, even though it's been around probably about 50 years. So we could recover from that reasonably quickly, I suspect. Thank you. Now we have a, a question. Well, Stuart, this, apparently this is your gran who's calling in. As we get old, why do hairs grow down our nostrils? What a fantastic question. Um, I have to say, I have noticed this, uh, particularly with a few of my male friends as they're getting older. Um, Chris, why does nostril hair and perhaps even ear hair as well seem to grow when you're older? And also, is there anything you should do about it? Well, you can do what you're doing, Kat, which I noticed you've got your headphones on, so you're covering up the problem. Can't see my hairy Can't ears, see what's going no. on with your hairy ears, no. <laughs> it, it isn't just confined to me. Uh, everybody gets more hairy, <clears throat> excuse me, gets more hair as they get older. And the reason for this is that uh, the hair that you have on your body is actually sensitive to androgens. These are testosterone-like chemicals. And as you go through life, your testosterone exposure of your hair follicles that grow hair increases. And so therefore you are destined to become hairier as you get older because testosterone encourages those hair follicles to grow more hair. And is, and this, spe- is this men and women as well? Yeah, it is. And um, specifically what testosterone or testosterone-like chemicals does is it prolongs what's called the anagen phase of hair. Hair goes through th- three phases. It has an anagen phase when the hair grows. It has a catagen phase when the hair stops growing. The hair follicle switches off. The hair falls out. And then it goes into a thelogam phase, which is its resting phase for a little while. And then it starts growing again, back to the start. The testosterone-like signals prolong the length of the anagen phase, and the anagen phase dictates how long the hair's got to grow for. So therefore, you're going to get a longer hair if you make the anagen phase longer. So you will have the same number of hairs on your body, but you will make thicker, 
bigger, longer hairs in response to testosterone. To come back to your question about women, women are vulnerable to this, but they tend to be less vulnerable until the age of the menopause, because at the age of the menopause, the level of oestrogen in the bloodstream falls down. And oestrogen reverses the effect on the hair follicle of testosterone. It stops the hair follicle responding to testosterone. So when the oestrogen level comes down a bit, and women do have testosterone, it becomes more dominant. And as a result, you do see more hairs growing. Nose, ears, other parts of your body as well. And what should you do about it? You know, can you just pluck them out? Very, very painful. I don't know if you've tried plucking nasal hair, but some people say this is the strongest stimulus that you can uh, succumb to. Right? <laughs> guys around the table. <laughs> uh, nose plucking here, yeah, guys. <laughs> no. Makes you cry really, really profoundly. But yes, you can, you can trim them. It's a myth. If you trim the hair, it will grow back more. No evidence for that whatsoever. So you can comfortably clip away and snip away at your nose, nose and, and ear hair and you will do it with impunity. You'll be fine. Jenny. Why does this only apply to nose hair and ear hair and basically hair where you don't want it? Why does the hair on your head, particularly for men, get thinner with age then? It does with women as well. And uh, there is a conversion process of turning the testosterone in the bloodstream or in women testosterone-like chemicals. It gets converted into dihydrotestosterone in the scalp. And for some reason, certain populations of the hair follicles on the scalp are sensitive and they die in response to the buildup of testosterone there or the exposure to testosterone. Um, because the receptor that does this is on the X chromosome and men only have one X chromosome, women have two. If you have the variant of the gene that makes you susceptible to balding and you're a man, you have that and nothing else so that you're destined to lose your hair in that male pattern. With women, because you have two chances because there are two X chromosomes and you randomly use one or the other all over your body, then you've actually got more chance that you won't see a, a loss of hair and also the testosterone levels are lower to start with. So the answer is you need to transplant it from your nose to your head. Anyway, moving swiftly on, we've got a question for you, Stuart, and this is from our listener, John. Why, when scientists discuss terraforming a planet as a backup world for when we destroy Earth, they always talk about Mars. Terraforming Mars would take a massive amount of energy, resources and time, possibly bankrupting Earth and speeding its demise. Why does no one talk about Venus, almost a twin planet of Earth with the same gravity? So why do we have the Martian, the film, and not the Venusian well, it's a really interesting question. So maybe I should set out to start off with that terraforming is this uh, proposal, this hypothetical idea that we could go to another planet and somehow do some very large scale engineering project that would change the environment into a living, habitable environment, a bit like the Earth. So people often think of going to Mars and trying to give it an atmosphere. And it's a good question. Why not Venus? It's a, a planet that is very similar in size to the Earth. It's about uh, got 90% of the gra strength of the gravity. So it'd be similar in that respect. But actually, it's it's almost highlighted in the question that it's it's a real problem in terms of the the energy required. So, Venus is a very chaotic environment. It's a, a atmosphere made of kind of ninety five percent carbon dioxide. It's incredibly high density. So, on the surface of Venus, the the pressure of the atmosphere pulling down you is ninety two times the pressure that you'd find on earth that's just because there's so much gas in the atmosphere weighing down on you on the surface is it there is just so much so much uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and, and you know as a, as a comparison that's like standing 900 meters under the surface of the sea it's huge pressure, pressure squished, that crushed, absolutely yeah. squished by everything also the temperature as well on the surface about 450 degrees c so it's, it's hotter than your oven on the surface so you're effectively yeah a pancake yeah you're a pancake on the surface there how, how did all that gas get in the atmosphere in the first place why is the earth not like that 
So that's a really interesting question. So there are arguments around whether different planets, say Mars or Venus, were more like the Earth in, in times gone by. And one of the issues, actually, one of the big differences between Venus and Mars and the Earth is that the Earth has a magnetic field. And that's because we have convection currents of, of materials in the Earth's core that create this magnetic field. And that protects us from something called the solar wind. The solar wind is a lot of basically highly energized particles flying off the sun uh, and striking the atmosphere of the Earth. And the magnetic field in our case protects us from that. In the case of Venus and Mars, that's not there to protect it. So even when you do get things such as oxygen forming, those molecules can be interacted, bashed into by the solar wind and taken off into space so they wouldn't even collect their stuff off with. Thanks very much, Stuart. What you end up with is, in effect, this sequence that you've added, precisely inserted in the targeted position in the genome. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we look at the hottest new biotechnology technique to hit the headlines since forever. CRISPR has big implications for health, plus linking genetics to lifestyle, and our gene of the month is black and white and very cute. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and this week we're taking all your burning questions and putting them to our panel of experts. Later on, we'll be finding out if animals get stressed out and discovering the secrets of the dark web. But if you're sat at home searching for answers to your science questions, you can email them to us at chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll hopefully find an answer for you next time round. Now, Kat, there's been a big news story out this week, which was about the new way of treating cancer with so-called immunotherapy. And we actually heard from a lady in Canada called Jess, who says her son has bilateral retinoblastoma. And she would like to ask a bit about whether the treatment will be applicable to that. We can come back to that in a second. First of all, tell us what is this news story? Why is it big news and how does it work? For my day job, I work for Cancer Research UK and we had an incredibly busy week this week because there were lots of headlines saying cancer cure, treatment, all of this. And it came from a presentation that was made at a meeting where researchers who've been running a small clinical trial of a new type of therapy that's called immunotherapy, where researchers use cells from a patient's own immune system that they take out of the patient. They basically genetically engineer them in such a way that they can recognise and destroy cancer cells and then they put them back into the the patient's body where they seek out recognize and destroy cancer cells. Now it's a very small study that was done there was about 35 patients in it and for types of cancer leukemia and lymphoma so these are cancers that affect cells in the blood system and that's quite an important point and they had in some cases some quite remarkable sounding effectively cures people seemed to get completely better and these were people with terminal cancer they'd had all the treatment options they possibly could and their cancer was still growing that said it's a small study it was also presented at a meeting we haven't got the full set of data it hasn't been reviewed and published in a scientific journal and it's really important to point out that there were at least seven people who had very severe side effects from this treatment. There's something called a cytokine storm where their immune system gets massively overstimulated. It produces all these uh, really unpleasant molecules. And in fact, two people died as a result of this huge immune overstimulation. So while the treatment can work for some people, it didn't work for all of them. And there are side effects. So there's a lot of work to be done to kind of unpick this. And also it was for these particular types of blood cancer because they have a molecule on the surface of the cancer cells that's relatively, relatively easy to train the immune cells to seek out and destroy. Other cancers, different types of cancer, um, particularly the listener who's written in here about her son who has a type of cancer called uh, retinoblastoma, which is a type of cancer that affects the eye in children. 
those cancers are going to be more difficult to target because you have to work out what are the molecules on the surface of that particular cancer? How do we train the immune system to target those? How do we get these immune cells there into the tumour in enough level that they can actually do their do their duty? So this it's a huge ongoing research project around the world. There's lots and lots of labs working on this, lots of trials underway. And it's, it is really exciting. And certainly I've worked uh, at Cancer Research UK for 11 years now, and it is very exciting stuff. But it's not the cure for cancer right now. Just to return to Jesse's question about retinoblastoma. Retinoblastoma is a tumour in the back of the eye. It is caused by inheriting a faulty copy of a gene that stops cells dividing when something goes wrong. And this, this means that there is a high likelihood that an individual who has this change to their DNA will develop a cancer not just in one eye, but in both eyes and at a very young age. Now, the problem with uh, treating this treatment or using this same treatment that we've heard about for the blood cancer on retinoblastoma, as Kat says, you need to find a marker which would single out the cancer cells from healthy tissue. Now, actually, with the present treatment that Kat's been talking about, they didn't do that. What they used is a marker that's present on all kinds of immune cells called B lymphocytes in the body, a subset of which in these patients were the cancerous ones. So actually, they did destroy some healthy cells, some B lymphocytes, in order to get rid of the cancerous B lymphocytes. And these people now no longer have B cells, so they can't make any of their own antibodies. They're going to be dependent on blood transfusions. But there is currently no marker that we know of that we could use specifically for these retinal cells that might be cancerous, which would prevent the immune system from damaging a healthy retinal cell as well. And we don't want to send someone blind unnecessarily. So at this stage, it needs a lot more work, as you say, doesn't it? Now, that big cancer story, it hasn't been the only thing in the news this week, because recently, Einstein's 100-year-old theory has finally been proven right with the discovery of gravitational waves. Now, of course, it does seem sensible. Stuart's smiling over there. Are you happy about this, Stuart? Yes. Yeah, it's really exciting. But because it's so exciting, we're actually not going to talk about it in this week's show. Um, (laughs) You don't have to do all of gravitational waves. I'm very happy about that. That's good. It's it's a complicated topic. Exactly. So we're going to dedicate an entire show to it next week. We're going to have all things gravitational waves. So for now... Can I I ask you one sneaky question? Just because, actually, this surface this week, we we looked at the paper when Mm. they published their data, Mm. and we were quite intrigued by one thing we couldn't really explain so i'm hoping that you can help me with this okay (laughs) the question is how do they know where the gravitational waves came from because everyone has said oh it's these two black holes twiddling around each other about a billion light years away and the gravitational waves came across space they were out there somewhere they came in and we detected them how do they know that mixture of two things so in order to interpret the data from this particular experiment, the LIGO experiment, they've been uh, simulating the kind of behaviours they might expect to see for a very long time. They've been running all of Einstein's equations through models, trying to understand. So that's how they pattern match. That's how they know when a fingerprint comes along, what they're looking at. And in this case, that represented two black holes. But in that case, why, where, where can they get extra information about where it comes from? Well, it's in part to do with the fact they've got two detectors in two different locations and it's a combination of the fact they've got two detectors which helps them verify they're seeing something that's definitely happening combined with those calculations that lets them see and do they then look out into space in the right sort of direction that the detector is looking in and look for a a phenomenon i.e. a big black hole out there now and say well look that probably was two smaller black holes a billion light years ago billion years ago and they've merged and that's that was the source of the waves can't find anything else in that neck of the woods in space to account for it 
Um, I think so. In this particular case, it was just one event they were looking at. Now, I don't know whether they're now looking in that particular area. I think what's really exciting is that although this is an initial result, it's given or it's shown that this particular type of telescope, which is effectively what it is, it's a, it's a way of doing astronomy, a way of looking at the world, is actually now going to be possible to develop that tool into a way we could do what you're saying, which is to look deeper into certain areas and scan certain areas and regions of space. It is super exciting. And now we're going to ask you another question. So, Stuart, wrap your ears around this one. This is Jean from Cape Town, and I have a question for the naked scientist. Tornadoes, like the devastating one in Oklahoma, feed on their own energy, i.e. wind force. Can we dissipate or disturb that one-directional force by sending an explosive device, like a rocket, by whatever controlled means into the tornado. What a fantastic question. Could we get rid of a tornado by just blasting it? What do you reckon? I love this idea. You could just, you know, you could put a little firework into it and it would suddenly fizzle out and but the tornado would disappear. I think actually saying put a nuke into it, actually, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, let's not, let's not do things by half. That's an extreme solution. Uh, so would it, would it work? If you put a massive source of energy into a huge energetic tornado, would it work? Well, it's a really difficult question. And the reason why it's difficult is because we still don't really understand properly the complex behaviour of how tornadoes form and, and what's really going on. And one of the big problems is also that if you try and put your scientific instrument in the way of a tornado to measure what's happening inside it doesn't last very long <laughs> yeah. yeah it kind of gets blown Oops. away by the wind well, what do people think what when they do theory I mean, people have run models and things what do they think powers a tornado how do they think it works so a kind of basic level there's the idea that it requires a mixture of uh, two different environments it needs uh, moist uh, warm air meeting cool air and that will give you the ingredients for a thunderstorm and tornadoes usually form from a particular type of thunderstorm called a supercell and the argument generally is that if you have, um, say, a surface wind blowing in one direction and winds at a higher level blowing in another direction, you get this rotating funnel forming. And that if you have an updraft, you might turn what is a horizontal funnel into a vertical one where it touches down and becomes a tornado. Um, so that's kind of the, the theory. Now, it's still very complicated. It's still not very well known. So in terms of I, I wanted to do some calculations. I really wanted to try and work out some numbers, but it's not really meaningful without a better understanding of, of what it is. But it has, this idea has come up a few times, and I'm going to uh, refer to the, the National Severe Storms Laboratory in the US, which is a government laboratory you study these kind of phenomena. And they mentioned that if you could, you know, if you could get off enough energy to dissipate the tornado, well, that might work. But actually, the tornado is a fraction of the energy of the total storm. So you might just end up with another tornado forming straight away anyway from the same storm. Oh, so storm. you might paradoxically detonate your explosion and trigger another one. Well, yeah, you get rid of one, but another one comes straight back at you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's like whack-a-mole with tornadoes, yeah. basically. Yeah. Okay, so really nice idea, but one that's not going to work. Thanks very much for your question, John. Uh, we've got, had a question in from Anthony. I think this one's probably for you, Ginny. And I speak as someone who also gets very, very stressed. This is a question about stress. And Anthony says, what happens in the body with chronic stress? And also, do animals get stressed? Well, let's start with the first half of that question. So stress has evolved to protect us, but the kinds of things it evolved to protect us against were, oh my goodness, there's an animal that wants to eat me. They're quite short-term problems and our body deals with them by preparing to either fight or to run away. It releases adrenaline, your heart rate speeds up, your breathing quickens, all these sort of things that are going to help you run away. Now, in modern day life, we don't encounter a lot of scary animals that want to eat us. And our stressors have become very different things. And that's led to this phenomenon of chronic stress. When your stress is something like 
a horrible boss who's giving you more and more work every day and is really, really demanding. It's ongoing. And you can end up with these the levels of the stress hormone, which for short bursts aren't going to do you any harm. If they continue being raised for a long period of time, they can do some really nasty things. They can weaken your immune system and they can lead to all sorts of problems. And that's what we call chronic stress. And is this similar to, I know a few people who have anxiety and things like that, where it, they sometimes say, you know, they just feel like they're on the edge all the time. And that is, is that again, their sort of adrenaline and their cortisol, the stress hormones just yeah. going over time? So we think, we think anxiety is linked to stress hormones, but no one fully understands it. But anxiety attacks can be really, really horrible things where people almost even feel like they're dying. Um, and we don't fully understand them. But yes, they are linked to these kind of raised levels of these hormones. And what about animals? You know, do, do dogs and cats and birds, uh, do they get stressed out? Well, this is interesting because the kind of stress that we've been talking about is a very human kind of stress. Actually, people use the term stress in relation to animals to mean any kind of physiological challenge. So it could be being cold or being hungry or um, not having somewhere to hide. Those those are stressors. So if we talk about stress in that terms, then yes, all animals can get stressed if they're cold or they're hungry. They're not happy. They're stressed. If we mean the more kind of human type of stress that we were just talking about, then it very much depends on the level of intelligence of the animal. So we know for definite that um, chimps can become stressed. Subordinate chimps, who are the ones who are not in charge, they're much more likely to show stress-related behaviours and have raised levels of these hormones than the dominant chimps, the equivalent of your boss being less stressed than you. And what uh, about animals in zoos? Because you sort of hear about certain animals or, or things like the uh, the orcas in some sea life parks that where, where they're getting very, very again, unhappy. I, I don't know if the studies have been done specifically on them, but orcas are very, very intelligent. So I wouldn't be surprised if they showed similar effects. They've also shown that um, pets can pick up on human stress. So I think if we're thinking about these kind of animals that live in social groups that have quite complex lives, then they can exhibit stress like us. The the less complex the animal's life is, perhaps the less likely they are to exhibit that kind of stress. Uh Thanks very much, Ginny. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Katani, Peter Cowley, Ginny Smith and Stuart Higgins this week. We're answering your science questions. All you have to do is send them in. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. Peter, here's a question for you. We've had Sine who has asked, how do we store solar and wind energy? Because this is a big problem with renewables, isn't it? That you can generate them, but you just can't keep them. Yes. Well, I assume the question means how do you store them not in its current form? So the concept yeah, the of sun, storing the photons. The sun's a good, uh, exactly, <laughs> good or storage storing device. the moving air molecules. You know, tornado is a great source of energy there, isn't there? Yeah. So what it means is how do you store them once you've converted to something else? And of course, there are all kinds of different ways of doing that. But the three main ones, uh, which are chemical, so you charge a battery and discharge the battery. So you're storing the energy from solar or wind and you can use it again at other times, particularly that moves the uh, energy production from say daytime to nighttime uh kinetic so flywheels things where you're 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 changing the energy into something that's um kinetic which can then be run down again so Uh, like winding up a spring exactly yes yeah Yeah, there's there's some work done here in cambridge on superconducting uh magnets for high temperatures of conducting magnets for flywheels for storing energy in in saudi arabia specifically or of course potential energy and that's been done for many years in north wales actually there's a um, power station called dinner i hope i pronounced that correctly which is about two gigawatts which is done by 
pumping water up when you've got spare energy capacity in the grid and let it come back down again in generating power um, when the need's high because we're getting close to our peak production. And where are the innovations coming from? Because I know people like Tesla in the States, they're very excited about trying to get better batteries, but it does feel that although there's been a lot of emphasis on more efficient solar panels and stuff, doesn't really seem to be a lot of emphasis on making better storage techniques or better batteries. Well, actually, yeah, the battery's a different issue altogether. That's to do with the chemistry of the battery, and that's, that's obviously not satisfying as well. Mobile phones don't last long enough, etc. or yeah, smartwatches, which we'll talk about in a few <laughs> minutes, no doubt. Um, it, it's not that. It's how the, this energy is being stored. Now, the amount of energy that can be produced by every, everything, say, in the UK, is limited, of course, in any country it is. So but if you can move the usage away from the, t- the peak times to other times by storing energy, then you don't need to build new, new power stations. And that's being done either at the edges of the grid with big uh, containers full of batteries or actually being done in the home, which is where the Tesla thing comes from. So the Tesla box, which is quite expensive, but there are UK versions of it, where you're actually storing the energy in the home from solar or from cheap energy overnight and then distributing out possibly as DC because more and more devices, your USB devices, your, you know, uh, LED lighting, etc., is DC. So, so yeah, there is lots going on. Are there issues not just with storing the energy, but also then connecting everybody up? Because say if we all put solar panels on our house, we wouldn't necessarily only be using the amount of power made from then. So how do you connect up all the different Well, that's stations? been done for several years now because you, could, you, you can sell your solar energy back into the grid. So there's something called the feed-in tariff, which allows you to actually make money out of the solar panels. So the, actually, with electricity, it's pretty well connected, the UK anyway. If you were to connect other things, like water, it's not nearly as well connected. So... And it's, it's really interesting because there's the other side of that as well, which is the, the usage. So there's a lot of research into smart grids, which is the idea of can you, can you do clever things with all these connected electrical devices? So there's a study in London uh, or a company in London that's looking at, you know, can they shut down the air conditioning in a particular hotel for a few hours that would reduce demand, allow you to moderate the flow of energy coming in and out of the system uh, and to, to try and meet some of those demands and actually do things on the other side, on the consumption side as well. It's sort of knowing what are priority things. Like you wouldn't want to turn off someone's life support machine, for example, in order to meet the demands of the grid. But my fridge really won't care if it's interrupted for five minutes when everyone's turning their kettle on because their favourite teleprogram has gone to adverts. And so uh, you, you can dynamically shift power around the grid to make it more efficient so we don't have to keep loads of power stations sort of running on standby to make up or mop up the, the shortfall. That is going to be happening. The smart meters and all our devices in time will, so we won't actually have control over when the fridge is or the freezer's on and off. Of course, if we want lights on, we're allowed to switch those on. But <laughs> you must well, sit in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we keep the radios on. That'd be great. Um, so, this is a, there's a related thing, Peter, that I gather you've been looking into this week. So, I, I remember from my secondary school science lessons. Then, you know, everything, all processes give off waste energy, whether that's heat or a bit of movement or sound or anything like that. Now, you know, in the world of noisy washing machines, things moving, cars, mobile phones getting warm, this seems like maybe an untapped resource. So is there any way of, of harvesting this spare or wasted energy? It Tell me about this. It is a huge untapped resource, as you can imagine. And it's been done for, for many years. I mean, uh, winding up a watch, which goes back perhaps six, seven hundred years, you're actually winding up from energy from your hand, which is to do with food pr- producing energy, which is then stored in a spring. On, I, I've actually got two watches on for some strange reason today. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one that winds automatically, which is a Swiss one, which is a very nice 
one. So when you wiggle your wrist, it, exactly. it winds so, up. So is there a weight in there or something that's, the, that's wiggling? There is something that rotates and built, the spring's built up. So it, it basically runs overnight. So when I've taken it off, so it, it'll actually work for about sort of 24 hours. On my other wrist, I have a smartwatch. Do you have to plug in your smartwatch overnight and, and You do, charge unfortunately. It? It's terrible. So how? tell us some examples of how this, this spare energy, how could it be generated and how can we trap it and yeah, harvest well, it? Yeah, there's a, a smart pavement slabs that's been around for some time uh, which doesn't generate much power but does actually show the importance of saving energy so uh, this is when people step on the pavement correct. It's it only, it only generates a few milliwatt hours so it won't generate very much unless you've got huge crowds there is there's a lot of work going on in um as you know internet of things lots of devices out there these sensors need some sort of power the power's got to come from somewhere it can't always come from solar power it can't come from batteries because you have to change those so actually c- collecting energy from vibrations collecting energy from movement collecting energy from temperature variations there's work also that's uh, been mentioned in in the bbc site quite recently was was to do with pacemakers have batteries batteries need changing unless you charge them externally but there's an awful lot going on in the body with temperature changes and movement so why can't you actually um just take the energy from that and uh, somebody tried it on a pig's heart actually and a pig's heart just the movement of the heart will generate five times more than you need on a pacemaker Stuart. yeah so that's really interesting because there's a, there's a whole field of research called thermoelectrics which is the idea of can you use materials to directly generate a voltage to directly directly generate the power and that's actually something we do we do at the physics department in the university Cambridge is looking into those different materials and trying to understand can we convert that into a voltage directly from the heat around the system? Because you can generate a voltage, can't you, by just having two things at different temperatures? Yes, yeah, so that's, it. that's the thermoelectric effect. It's just having two things at different temperatures, they will naturally form a voltage in certain materials. Oh, fantastic. Well, I wonder if in my morning shower, just because my bathroom's warm, maybe I can make my coffee <laughs> with that energy. Thanks very much, guys. Chris, we've got a sniffly question from Staffan here. Can you have more than one cold at a time? And how could you tell? Originally, we thought the answer to that question was no. And the reason we thought the answer to that question was no is that when you are infected with a cold, which is a virus, the virus goes into the cells lining your nose and throat and possibly your lungs, and it triggers what we call an interferon response. The virus trips over various molecular tripwires inside your cells, triggering the cells to sound an alarm. And that alarm signal spreads to all of the other surrounding cells and goes systemically through your body. And it puts your other cells into an antivirus state, making them very hard to infect and very hard, or much harder, for viruses to grow in those cells. So we went around saying, well, we therefore think it's unlikely you'll suffer from more than one virus infection at a time. Now, in the last 10 years or so, though, we have, certainly in our hospital, but but almost universally in most first world hospitals, we've switched over to what we call molecular diagnostics now. And this is where people send in blood samples or they send in samples of of swabs from their nose and throat when they've got various respiratory illnesses. And we extract the DNA and RNA, its chemical relative, from those swabs. And then we read the genetic message to see which virus signatures we can pick up. And what we're routinely seeing now is that there are people with three, four, in some cases, five different virus infections recoverable at the same time. So while it's probably true that you will get this very powerful immune response including the release of this chemical interferon when you have a virus infection it's also true that you are not put into a completely resistant state and you can succumb to multiple viruses at once we know what they are and we also know that they can do what's called synergize if you've got two things going on at once they can make you worse than if you have just one thing badly 
because I've had a really horrific stomach bug over the past sort of week or so, you know, the full like up and down and feeling grotty. So just, am I going to be immune to getting something like that again? Well, there are a number of aspects to this. When you have had uh, an infection, then you will develop a neutralising antibody response to the thing you have just succumbed to. And what that means is your immune system has seen what it looks like. It makes antibodies and it makes an immune memory, which includes making more antibodies for the long term, but also white blood cells capable of attacking cells that have got that virus in. Great. You're not going to catch that virus again. But a lot of these viruses use a chemical called RNA as their genetic material instead of DNA. And RNA, unlike DNA, which is double-stranded, one strand is the genetic mirror image of the other. It's like a backup copy. So if something goes wrong with one strand, you've got the, the backup image to fall back on. RNA just a single strand of genetic information. And if that changes through a process called mutation, then you change what the virus looks like. It's like a molecular facelift for a virus. And what that means is that you just don't recognise it for what it is and it can come again. And this is exactly what the flu does and it can come again and again and again. Norovirus, which if you've had a really bad dose of, uh, of upset stomach, is a, a good contender. Norovirus changes probably faster than any other virus that we know of. Um, roughly one in every 100 genetic letters that it makes is going to have a genetic spelling error in it. And the harsh reality with norovirus is that in every millilitre of what leaves your body upwards or downwards when you're infected with noro, there's enough virus in that one milliliter to infect the entire population of the world. Well, that's a joyful thought for so us it's all. it's hard not to catch it. And I apologise for everyone I may have infected <laughs> in the past week. This is for you, Ginny. This is our listener, David Nichols. Um, my question is, why aren't all human beings ambidextrous? And in other words, um, from an evolutionary perspective, is there any advantage to us for favouring one hand over the other? Ginny, what do you reckon? Well... The answer to this is we don't fully understand why we have handedness and why around nine out of ten of us worldwide are right handed. From an evolutionary point of view, we know that it's been like this for a very long time because there are some um, cave paintings from between 10 and 30,000 years ago where what the people did was they put one hand on the cave wall and they used their other hand to hold a pipe and they blew paint through it and then took their hand away so they left like an outline of their hand. And if you're right-handed, you do that by putting your left hand on the wall and blowing through the pipe in your right hand and if you're left-handed, you naturally do it the other way around. And the proportions of right and left hand are exactly as you'd expect if they have the same proportion of right and left handers as we do now. So it's obviously been around for a very long time. There may actually, interestingly, be some advantages to being a left-hander in a right-handed world because if you see this nowadays in sport. There are some advantages to being unexpected and it may have been that when there was a lot more hand-to-hand combat, the lefties actually had a bit of an advantage but only if there weren't very many of them. So you get this interesting kind of evolution where there's a benefit to being the odd one out. Why we even have handedness it's likely to be down to the fact that we're not completely symmetrical on the inside. I mean, we've only got one heart, which is on the left-hand side, for example, and our brains are equally non-symmetrical. And we think that might relate to handedness. We know that most right-handers have their language areas in the left-hand side of their brain, whereas left-handers, sometimes their brains are the other way around, and sometimes they're just much less lateralised, so they're more symmetrical. But they have their brains can be organised slightly differently. So it 
it may be that actually there's no advantage to the handedness itself, but there is an advantage to the way of organising your brain. And then the handedness sort of comes out of it. So if you think about language, that requires very precise muscle movements, moving your lips and tongue and throat in very specific ways. So perhaps having the same hemisphere controlling that as controlling the hand that you do most of your stuff with was kind of beneficial. Thanks very much, Ginny. I think I also saw kangaroos have mm. handedness was announced recently, but they don't have language as far as I know, Ginny. So, That's true. Uh, and really interestingly, sure. they tend to be lefties. Yeah, I wonder why. Who knows? This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Katani, and our guest panel this week, Ginny Smith, Peter Cowley and Stuart Higgins. We've heard from uh, someone on the Naked Scientist app. This is Anand, who says, I work in a care home. You see lots of slow deterioration in people's memory, causing confusion. Is dementia on the rise, he asks, or is it just we're diagnosing people better? Well, actually, it's both, Anand. We're seeing better pickup because we know what we're looking for, but also people are living longer. We've got an ageing population, and that means more people are living long enough to develop dementia. And the stark reality is at the moment there are about 30 million people in the world with dementia. Within the next 30 years or so, that number's set to climb to 150 million. It could be as, as much as a third of the population of some Western countries. So certainly governments are very, very worried about how we're going to care for these people with these problems in future. Great question. And we've got another question in here from our listener, Geoffrey Cobb, who says, how long does it take a comet to form? So, Stuart, I think you should answer this one. Well, for a start, what is a comet and how long does it take one to form? So a comet is this mixture of uh, frozen gases and frozen ice and dust compacted together into uh, an object. And it's different to a meteor, so it's different to just the rock that we see, because comets in particular have this, this phenomenon that as they uh, come into our solar system, as they get near to the sun, they get bathed in sunlight, that some of this, uh, these gases will start to melt and vaporise, and that's what gives comets its atmosphere and sometimes its tail that travels across the universe. And so... Where do they, or how do they, how long do they take to form? I kind of get asked, where do they come from? So it goes all the way back to the start of our solar system. So 4.6 billion years ago, where the solar system basically consists of a large cloud of of dust uh, and particles in a large, large field. And over time, these uh, dust particles will start to uh, aggregate, start to clump together and form uh, combinations of material that got larger and larger. Now, some of those went on to become very big and become uh, planets, but some of them remained quite small and, and developed into comets. And it's very difficult to say exactly how long they take to form because it's a very long time ago. So things that are a very long time back, we have quite large uncertainty, quite large error bars on our, on our calculations. Um, but some of the estimates put it around uh, 10,000 to 100,000 years for the, the comet to form into the form it is. And surrounding our solar system, there's something called the Oort cloud, which is this giant cloud of comets that are just sitting there waiting there. And occasionally one of them gets bashed into and starts its journey into our solar system and either does an orbit around the sun or goes crashing into a planet or crashing in and out again. Like, I guess that's like the uh, 67P. Oh, God, I... I... I'm going to try and say it. Come on, Chris, okay, you can say it. 67p, Jiriamov, Jurassimenko. Jurassimenko. Because that, that was a very impressive comet in our solar system that we actually managed to land something on. Incredibly impressive. And just to show how recent and how our understanding of comets is still developing, um, in the last few weeks, the Rosetta mission has actually announced some new results saying that their, uh, their, their spacecraft, Rosetta, which is orbiting this comet, has been um, doing some measurements to understand the composition of the comet. And actually, we thought, maybe, what's a comet like in size? It's got caverns, it's got 
not holes, but actually they're very uniform. This dust and frozen mix is very uniform throughout the entire entire comet. I do love the idea. They're like they're like the stuff at the back of the freezer of the universe, aren't they? Really, <laughs> the, all this stuff that was there and has always been. There. And that's why it's so exciting because it can tell us something about the the very origins of our solar system. Absolutely fantastic stuff, Chris. Here's one for you from our listener Michael, who says. Why isn't spicy considered a taste? Now, I had some very spicy chicken wings yesterday and they tasted pretty good to me. But is spicy not an official taste? Well, actually, as someone wrote on on the Naked Scientist web forum, which you can go to nakedscientist.com slash forum, they said, rub some chilli in your eye and you'll then understand it's not about taste. It's about pain. And the answer to this question is actually an anatomical one and a functional one. We tend to talk about five different tastes or taste sensations bitter sweet salty and sour and they are recorded or detected on your tongue by what we call taste buds which are specialized clusters of nerve endings which are covered in receptors these are molecules that can lock onto various things in food and they then signal to the nerve and tell the nerve to fire off impulses to your brain stem which then tells your brain this is what i am tasting and that's confined to the tongue And there are two nerves that do that job. There's a nerve at the anterior, the front two thirds of the tongue called the corda tympani, which supplies some of those taste sensations. There's another nerve called the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is the back third of the tongue. Now, pain, on the other hand, is not restricted just to the tongue. And chili is pain. You can sense those sensations all around your mouth cavity, all over your tongue and in your throat. And chili is capsaicin. That's the molecule. And it binds onto a totally different class of nerve fibres called C fibres, they have on their surface a certain molecular docking station, a receptor called TRIP-V1, and when the capsaicin binds onto them, it triggers a burning or heat sensation. Those same nerve fibres also tell you whether things are hot or cold. So in other words, the what we call taste is detected in a very special way, in a very special place, by a very special cluster of nerves. Those pain sensations are detected alongside all the other sensations you can feel in your mouth by the trigeminal nerve, so it's anatomically different and it's functionally different. Therefore, we don't regard the chilli pepper taste as a taste. We regard it as a sensation. And presumably this is why the uh, the saying goes, a really, really hot curry or a chilli will burn on the way out as well as the way it does. in. Um, you, you don't have very many of those pain fibres innovating, if any at all, innovating the rest of your GI tract. But your mouth and your bottom end those actually are made by the outer layer of your body, embryologically, the outer coating of your developing embryo, growing in and uniting with your gut tube at each end and taking with it the kinds of nerves that are there. And your trigeminal nerve is, is the nerve concerned. And that's the one that's got the receptors for chili, which is why, yes, you're very sensitive on the way in and very sensitive on the way out if it's a hot one. Now let's have a completely different question for you, Peter. Let's delve into the internet underworld with Abby's question. I wanted to know, what is the dark web and should we be worried about it? Wow, should we? What is the dark web? Well, well, let's define that first. So the web that we know it usually, which is uh, the stuff you can get out via a search engine, uh, Google or Bing or something, it's about 50 billion pages nowadays. Now, the next level down is so-called the deep web. This is not accessible by a search engine. This is massively bigger. This is 500 times bigger than that. That's 25 quadrillion pages out there. And, what and, sort but, of stuff is in well, the deep stuff, web then? Well, stuff that you can't get out, that the search engine can't get out. So stuff that where you've got to have logged in. So you log in to say you're 
your, your bank account or whatever. Or a corporate intranet or something like that. Exactly, something where you log But something where you've got through the internet to get to it, something where the web page changes depending on certain factors. So that is absolutely astronomical, and it's probably not even uh, immeasurable. So, And part of the deep web, I difficult to get at, is called the dark web, and that is minute in comparison. This is probably just a few tens or low hundreds of thousands of pages, so absolutely tiny. And but, so what's in this dark web, and then how do you get well, to it? Yeah, well, first of all, how you get to it, you have to get to it. And, and for, the, for the research for this program, I didn't dare go <laughs> onto it because you have to load some rather dodgy-looking software onto your PC or your, or your laptop. So uh, you get to it by having some special software on, on the machine, which then effectively completely anonymizes you and all the traffic, which goes over the, the public internet, is all completely hidden from anything else. It's the Tor browser, isn't the it? Tor the Tor browser, the exactly. Router, so you have used it, have you, Chris? <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Well, we do, oh, we do hear. So, so people are using this completely anonymous function to, to do, I'm, I'm sure, some completely non-nefarious things, but also we do hear about nefarious yes. things. So the nefarious done. thing, which is probably the, the dark web itself, is things really dodgy stuff. You know, it's buying basically and selling. sex and drugs, isn't it's it? It's sex and yeah, drugs, and exactly. And weapons and <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, but also the t- terrorists use it. This, you know, anything where you want to hide yourself completely away. Um, and so are we worried about it? Probably not. I mean, there are people worried about it. The NSA, GCHQ, MI6, there's a whole stack of security forces who are trying to dig around there because they'll be able to generate all kinds of information which will lead to criminals being uh, found. But I think as a normal member of the population, we shouldn't worry about it. There's plenty of criminality going on anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you should worry about it. Stuart. Yeah, and there's a, there's a real irony behind this as well because the, the Tor router, the Onion uh, router, which you referred to, this software was developed originally by the US government as a, as a means. So there's a it's kind of come a bit full circle and now trying to hack something that was originally developed as a government project and it, it really goes to the heart of that debate of privacy and encryption that we're currently having Also if you want to catch people doing naughty things you need to allow them to do the naughty thing in a way that you can monitor so actually having the dark web there in a way that you can monitor it but without them knowing you're monitoring it is kind of good in some respects isn't it? Well, it depends, yeah. And this is this is the challenge. You know, Tor is not foolproof. Um, you really don't really understand. We don't know exactly how how anonymous things are, and actually, true anonymity on the web is a very hard thing to achieve. We're going from the dark web to uh, basically dark consciousness. So here's a question from our listener, Nur. I guess I'll put this one to you, Chris. And they say, "Do you dream under anaesthetic?" Almost certainly not. The reason is that when you go to sleep and you have what's called physiological normal sleep, this is a very organised process of brain activity. And sleeping occurs when you go through a phase of sleep, which is called REM, rapid eye movement sleep. And you can see when this is happening to somebody because if you look at them when they are sleeping, you will see their eyelids flicking because their eyeballs are moving around underneath their eyelids. If you wake someone up when they're doing that and ask them, do you think, do you remember anything? Do you recall anything? They will almost overwhelmingly say, I was just having a dream. And as you go through the night, your dreams become longer, they become more detailed, and you tend to have your best, richest and most memorable and recallable dreams right at the end of a night's sleep. And we don't know what these dreams do, but they're they're very important for psychological well-being. If you deprive people of restful sleep and dream sleep, then they don't feel rested the next day, they don't remember things, they can't form new memories properly and that kind of thing. So it's probably got some kind of brain cleansing slash memory consolidation role. But when you put people to sleep with an anaesthetic agent, anaesthetics disrupt the membranes of nerve cells. And what they do is make nerve cells become less active than they should be. They increase the activity of inhibitory nerve signals in the brain and they decrease the excitation in the brain. And as a result, they just basically shut down your brain 
for the most part. There are some that work slightly differently, but that's the general process. And so all they do is just turn you into an unconscious individual with very low levels of brain activity, not this organised pattern of dream activity. So you do not dream when you're under an anaesthetic, although when you're waking up, you may have some bizarre experiences because your brain is just beginning to kick in and return to consciousness. And so some people do describe some rather strange memories as they wake up from an anaesthetic, but that's not when they were actually anaesthetised. So we're getting close to the end of the show, but hopefully we have time to answer this time-based question from our listener, Anthony. Stuart, what do you think about this? Why do we have a 24-hour day? So this is really interesting because it's actually a historical question so that historians have uh, attributed this division of the day into 24 hours to the ancient Egyptians. And the idea is that they had 10 hours for the daytime, 10 hours for the nighttime, plus two hours each for the dusk and dawn. And that's what formed the 24-hour clock. And there's an idea that this might have been linked to the number of stars that uh, astronomers were seeing in the night sky at that time, that maybe there was around 12 stars that occurred during different phases of the night. And that's what gives us our 24-hour clock. But where does the 60 minutes and the 60 seconds come from? So that's even more interesting. It's not from the same place. And so this idea of 60, this base 60 system, when I say base 60, what I mean is that we start counting from 0 to 59. That's the number of digits that represent our time. That kind of uh, goes back to the Babylonians and the idea that they were fascinated with this idea of 60. And we're not too sure why, but historians think or people have speculated that it's actually due to the fact that 60 is a, a very good number for dividing into different fractions. And that's where the base of the 60 minutes and the and the 60 seconds come from. But would it work if we say had metric time? How would that be possible with that or just uh, completely confusing for everyone? So it's, it's, it's important to specify what we mean by metric time. So, our, you know, our, our SI unit of time, the base unit, the scientist unit of, uh, used to measure time is the second. Uh, and that's standard. You get milliseconds, though. So that's going from sort of base 60 into decimal. Yeah, so that is already uh, a, a metric, a decimalised form of time. And so that's commonly used throughout the sciences because it's easy to work with. We like counting to 10. And actually, it's uh, it's a real problem because if you think about how computers work, which are reliant on date and time, how to record that in a computer is a really challenging problem. So most, uh, or a lot of systems, uh, in particular ones that are based on a, a, an architecture called Unix, use a, a specific point that's the start of time. They use January the 1st, 1970. 1970. <laughs> and that's what, that's what led to the Millennium Bug, wasn't it? It was one of the reasons. So the Millennium Bug specifically was about um, what happens when, you, when the programmers were being a bit lazy and only recorded the last two digits of the date, so like 00 or 01. But there's actually a, a proposed problem coming up in 2038, which is where... Basically, we ran out of space to store the number of seconds since 1970, which is how computers count time. So what will they do about the, the Unix timestamp problem then when we potentially run out of space? Is there, is there a new solution to surmount that? Yeah, so the, the problem is down to um, basically how much space you allocate in the computer to, to count the number of seconds. So what Unix time means is that the computer is just counting from zero seconds, the 1st of January 1970, up to the current time in seconds. And that has its own problems because actually the solar year and the solar times are all complicated. There's leap seconds. We need to adjust for the rotation of the Earth moving. It's a very complicated issue. But what you can do, of course, is just redesign your system. And if you implement basically software updates, that's what you need to do. Update your system. Very important. Another update coming my way. Thank you very much. And sadly, that is all we have time for. So a very big thank you to our wonderful panel this week. That's Chris Smith, Ginny Smith, Peter Cowley and Stuart Higgins. Many thanks to Connie Orbach for production this week. Join us next week when we're going to look at the A to Z of gravitational waves. So if you've got any theories, queries or quandaries, just send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSLC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. Until next week, goodbye from me and the rest of the Naked Scientist team.